Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On March 3rd, 1983, Terry Bradshaw used an alias when he was admitted for surgery on his throwing elbow. This story is near impossible, and you can't even dream this stuff up, unless you're a guy by the name of Nostradamus, because the pseudonym that his doctor used was Thomas Brady. Yes, Tom Brady, the name of the man who would ultimately surpass Bradshaw for Super Bowl wins. Now, this story resurfaced earlier this year. Just like something else resurfaced this year with ties back to 1983 just a few days after this now famous surgery. And that is the USFL. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast. Where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion. And he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time was a step of the DeLorean. The date is March 6, 1983, just three days after Tom Brady's surgery for the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> well, we all know it wasn't really that Tom Brady. It was the other Tom Brady. But three days later, as Tom Brady's recovering, a new league is underway. Today is the first day of games for the newly formed United States Football League, simply referred to as the USFL. This league was wildly popular for many fans, even attracting some big-name players to play in the league. But then, just a few years later, it folded, leaving the hopes and dreams of many laying in the dust. One of these people was Kyle Smith, future founder and executive director of the USFL Project which is a long-term project aiming to document and preserve the history of the United States Football League, leaving a foundation of knowledge for future generations. Now, Kyle himself is an award-winning journalist. Smith has also spent 15 years in the entertainment industry, as well as being both a host and guest on numerous radio shows and podcasts. In recent years, his attention has been focused on the USFL project with him and his team growing the group over 4,000 members. And speaking of Kyle on other podcasts, he's popped up on some other shows on the Sports History Network. I recommend you check them out after this interview. You can find Kyle on the Pigskin Dispatch, episode 319. You can also find him on Football is Family over at episode 39. And I'll tell you what, the best way to get to these podcasts, as well as all the other cool podcasts that we have on the network, is to head to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcasts. And I promise you, that if you have never been over to the podcast section over on the Sports History Network website, you're going to be able to find your next favorite show over there. 
So head over now and give it a go. We cover much more than just NFL history over on the Sports History Network, and we're always growing as we continue to strive to become the headquarters of sports yesteryear. Again, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcasts. With that, how about we dive into this interview with Kyle Smith? You might not know this. There's a DeLorean question later down the road that we might get into for that one. But uh, so speaking of that, USFL, what is the USFL project and what are you hoping to accomplish there? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. I really do appreciate the time. The funny thing about the USFL project is it's evolved so much over the past 15, 18, 20 years. Um, I started the USFL project as a hobby. There was a there was a sports collectible show uh, out on the East Coast and I saw it and I saw some familiar names from the USFL and I thought, I wonder if there's anybody out there that still sells or makes USFL uh, mini helmets, anything like that. So I found a company that has since gone out of business. And so I decided right then I was going to create the USFL project and my sole goal, and you'll probably laugh at this, but my sole goal with the USFL project when it started was I wanted to get an autographed mini helmet from every team that had been in the league. So the goal was the goal was 19 mini helmets signed by one player and that was going to be it. And then I created the Facebook page and started posting photos and then I started doing a deeper dive and seeing news about USFL alumni so I started posting it on the page and people were coming over to the page and starting to follow it and it got to the point where we had about we had a little over 2000 people and there were other people that were wanting to post. And so it kind of, it kind of became this whole animal. And I created a group on Facebook where other people could post USFL related um, information. And it is just, it's taken off. I mean, we've got over 4,000 members. We continue to grow. We get membership requests every day. It's just, uh, it, it's been incredible. It's, it's been an incredible journey from where it started to where it is now to where it's heading. How long ago did you say you started that? I started that, let's see, I started that about 15 years ago. And then in the past year, it's been kind of amazing. In the past year, a gentleman by the name of Tom Cato reached out to me and Tom had been working on something similar to the USFL project, just in a different fashion. And so he reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, I want to, let's be a team. And so the very, the very first time that I ever met Tom, we, we talked on Facebook, we talked on the phone, but the very first time I met Tom, I called him like maybe two days before. And I said, Hey, Tom, I'm meeting up with um, a guy that is a USFL alumni named John Corker that played for Michigan and also played for Memphis in 1985. I said, I'm meeting him in, in Arlington. Would you like to come and have lunch with us? And he rearranged his schedule and came down. So the very first time I met him, we're sitting down with a USFL legend. I handed him over a whole bunch of paperwork because he's very, uh, he's very involved in the statistics, the data, he, he wants to know everything there is to know about the USFL. And he had also been working with a gentleman in Canada named Jim Parcells. And Jim Parcells has come onto our team. And 
we also started talking to another gentleman named Rob Butts, and Rob Butts was actually signed to the Orlando Renegades for the 86 season that did not happen, but he was going to play for the Orlando Renegades in 1986, and he's been a big fan of the USFL, and um, he's part of our team as well. So, I, man, I, I lucked into probably the best team I could possibly have, and I'm grateful and thankful every single day. Yeah, it seems like it started off, like you said, as a passion, hobby, or whatever, and now it's you're tr- trying to transform it into morphing it really into something major that can stand the test of time. I mean, are these members just fans of the USFL, or do you have alumni, or who who would be members of the of this project? When when the, the USFL project group started out, it was most it was a majority fans, but. In the last couple of years, we've had a lot of different alumni and not only players, we've actually had coaches, we've had equipment managers, we've had cheerleaders, we've had ball boys, we've had a lot of different people that somehow we've had, we've had children of alumni who are no longer with us that have joined the group. Uh, At case in point, John Bassett Sr. was the owner of the Tampa Bay Bandits. And um, his son, John Bassett, has joined our group and, and been pretty active. So we've had a lot of different people join the USFL project. And, and like I said, it, it's growing like wildfire. I, I would have never guessed that I would have had a thousand people that would have been interested. And now we're taking requests every single day. Yeah, just imagine that many people being in a room at the same time with you would be like a flood. So that's very cool. And one thing I, and I, I've seen this in different other, you know, non NFL leagues that I've, I've looked into throughout my days here. And it just, the, the nicknames are so much flashier. Like you mentioned the bandits, the renegades. I, I forgot the other one that I saw the other day, but just different. They're not so vanilla. I wonder why that is for these other offshoot leagues. Well, one of it is trademark because you have to find a name that no one else has trademarked. So you do have to think outside of the box that, you know, case in point, the Houston Gamblers. I mean, the Houston Gamblers absolutely embraced that name to the point where they had a they had a pair of dice that they hung from the roof of the Astrodome and they would drop these dice for the dice game. And uh, somebody, a fan had to guess what it was going to land on. And if they did, they won a certain prize or season tickets or or whatever. So they really did, you know, embrace the team names and what the team names stood for. You know, you had the Pittsburgh Maulers. Maulers is such a great, great name. I mean, that is a fantastic football name. Um, the Oakland Invaders, they were fantastic. I mean, you had so many great names involved in the USFL. Yeah, the one, the the guy, was it the... The, the the logo with the little stick figure cowboy. What was that? That what was team San Antonio was Gunslingers. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that was that was owned by the infamous uh, Clinton Mangus, who uh, at, you probably have seen the documentary, the Thirty for Thirty, on who killed the USFL, and and Rick Neuheisel held nothing back, saying that the players, when they got their paychecks, they were rushing to the bank because they knew that only about half of them were going to clear, and then at the end, it got even worse. Oh man, I mean, again, the, unfortunately it, it ended, but there were so many fans that every, when I talked to people that were around for when that happened, that they just seemed like they were in love with it. And it was the, de- so when you're at a game, was it a different atmosphere than being at, say, an NFL or even a college game? Well, 
Now, my experience with the games was pretty limited because I grew up in um, in the central part of Oklahoma. And so in 1984, for that lone season, uh, we got the Oklahoma Outlaws. The unfortunate part was central Oklahoma was really football country for Oklahoma. You had the OU Sooners. You had the Oklahoma State Cowboys in Stillwater. And they chose to put the team in Tulsa. Now, Oklahoma is not a huge state. But for a kid, you know, in his formative years, driving from south of Oklahoma City, south of Norman, up to Tulsa was about a three and a half, maybe even four hour venture at that time. So I really only got to see a couple of games. The fans were really into it. They had their, you know, each team had their their own games that they played, you know, in-house and different video clips and packages and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was... Um, I wouldn't say it was a different atmosphere, but I think it was more of an electric atmosphere. Even, you know, even to this day, I I live just outside of DFW, so I go to a Cowboys game usually once a year. And, you know, for me, and, and you know, I don't want to take shots at the NFL because I'm not, that's not what I'm about. I'll love the Cowboys till the day I die. But, you know, they price the tickets out of the market. You're, you're a regular fan. That's why I only go once a year. I mean, your regular fan can only afford to go once a year because you're paying $50 to park. You're paying 300 to 400 upwards to get a ticket. You're paying $14 for a beer. Uh, you know, good for the NFL for what they're doing. But, man, they, they sure have priced a lot of uh, rabid Cowboys fans out of the market here. Yeah, when I moved down there, they, they had a sales representative. So this would have been 2013 coming around because we were a new company in the area and he he's, he brought me this nice little pamphlet for this Cowboys home season tickets and then he said hey here's some free tickets to it was a soccer game a couple different soccer matches beautiful stadium I'm up in this like elegant you know Jerry World type of uh, what's it called the the press box type thing not press box luxury box and then the guy's talking to me and everything and I said dude you know I'm a Detroit Lions fan I told you that at the beginning it's like I had a quota and he was like showing me the prices I'm like you, you kidding me <laughs> you seriously thought I was gonna go for this one but I uh, speaking of kidding me the kid and you and this little DeLorean I gotta bring this up over here okay when was the last season of the USFL the last full season was 1985. Okay, so it perfect timing because the '85 was when the first Back to the Future came out. That's when yours truly was born as well. So there's like some kind of theme there. Uh, let's take this first DeLorean question. Take me back to the moment where you remember when you first became interested in the USFL. I remember when the announcement came out on on ABC Sports. Now I was I was a little bit too young to really be following the news. I mean, I followed the sports, but I followed it to see who won, who lost, who hit a home run, who scored a touchdown, that type of stuff. When I actually heard the announcement from ABC Sports that the USFL was formed, I, I was ready. I, I didn't know any of the cities. I didn't know any of the team names. But when I heard there was going to be spring football, which was something and is still something, not again, not taking anything away from the XFL or you know any of the other leagues that have tried to play in the spring, but Spring football can work. It, it really can work, but there just hasn't been the, the right formation, um, the right owners, the right rules. The, the perfect package hasn't come together yet. 
Yeah, and it, it, I mean, you're talking at the USFL before the the big free agency and everything too. I wonder how much that plays into effect. I mean, there's some big names going down that list of players that played in the USFL and the NFL. I we're gonna get to that later. So let's first go with you mentioned a reference. I think I just heard one of your dogs back there. Didn't you say that one of your dogs is named after a team? Yes, uh, my most recent rescue dog who is standing right beside me now wondering why I'm not petting him. Um, I named him Bandit after the Tampa Bay Bandits and after Burt Reynolds, who was also an owner of the Tampa Bay Bandits. So I did. Now, I gave I gave my daughter the choice. I gave her three names and I didn't tell her what Bandit represented. And she actually agreed with Bandit. <laughs> nice. So I as far as owners go, I mean, we, we've heard of Trump as well, the ones that are not deep diving in the USFL. Uh, were there more celebrity owners like other leagues or no? I think I think the two main celebrity owners were Burt Reynolds in Tampa Bay and uh, Lee Majors, the million dollar man. He was a minority owner with the LA Express. So those were the those are your two real celebrity names besides, you know, of course, Donald Trump, who owned the New Jersey Generals. And that came in later, though, right? He wasn't at the very beginning of the Generals. He was not at the beginning. He was not at, in the 83 season. He became the owner in the off season, and he was the owner for the 84 and 85 season. That's where he really he started spending the money trying to bring the Generals into a championship. Okay, so before we get into the, we'll call it the formation of the first season, Oklahoma, you said, didn't last that long. What what would have been your favorite team then throughout? You know, I don't know. I, I think I think even though they only lasted one season, I think the Oklahoma Outlaws are still my favorite team. I mean, the team was the team was bad, but we had Doug Williams a quarterback. We had Woody Weidenhofer as our head coach, and you know, I just I love the team. And you know, there's two really distinct things that I remember about the Outlaws besides Doug Williams being the quarterback. The Oklahoma Outlaws, in my opinion, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get a lot of um, comments from USFL fans on this. The Oklahoma Outlaws, in my opinion, had the best uniforms in the entire league, bar none. I know there were some great uniforms, there were some great logos, but you take that black helmet with that black outlaw design on the side of it, with the black jersey, with the outlaw on the sleeve, and the black pants, and you go you go the all black route in the uniform the uniform arena, there was no uniform better than what they had. And I think, I think the outlaws probably would have been more successful in central Oklahoma. I I think if they could have worked out something with university of Oklahoma or maybe even Stillwater, they would have had more of a fan base, you know, Tulsa's, you know, up in the, the Northeast corner. So not as populated as that time, but, but yeah, I, Barna and the Oklahoma outlaws are, will always be my favorite USFL team. And, you know, and I hate to say that because I've met so many alumni who have been so gracious to the USFL project and every single one of them. I mean, we, we plant our flag in the ground for every single one of these men and women who had anything to do with the USFL. But if, you know, if I've got to, if I've got to name one, the outlaws are my team. Yeah, I mean, that's the the heart, the home and everything. So it would make sense, especially in a market where there was not previously like this professional football or professional sports, really. I mean, maybe 
the back in the day when it seemed like they had professional sports in a bunch of random cities, but what do you have basketball and that's it? Or is there baseball there too? Still have triple a baseball in Oklahoma city right now. And uh, they also have minor league hockey, I believe. Don't quote mm-hmm. me on that. I'd, I'd have to do a little bit more research, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no worries. I, I'm not super uh, abreast of all of the teams across the nation, especially a guy who's mostly in the NFL and that kind of thing. But uh, it's just interesting. So there's one of the partners on the network, Scott Adamson from Birmingham. He wrote a book about all the like. So the Birmingham, uh, I'm not sure who it was for the USFL, what their team name would have been. The Stallions. Okay, so the Stallions, they're the WFL. Like basically every pro team but the NFL has gone through Birmingham for some reason. They can't, you know, get anything else. And he writes a book about, I forgot what it's called, something to do with his his love affair with non football. I don't know what this, the name of the title is. I'm sorry, Scott, for blowing it on you right now. But uh, let's get into the, going back to the USFL, the USFL history. So, how and why did it form? You know, the, the funny thing about the USFL, what, what a lot of the casual fans don't know is the plan for the USFL was actually formed in the 1960s by a man named David Dixon, who was a very successful businessman. And he actually put out um, a little bit of information about the USFL being formed in the 1960s. And I think, I think part of that was because, um, early sixties, I think maybe even 1962, he had a, he had an agreement to buy the Raiders and he was going to buy the Raiders. And I believe he was going to move them to new Orleans and he had everything in line. And then the mayor of Oakland stepped in and said, no go, this is, this isn't going to happen. You're not going to do this. And so that, that was where not only, um, Dixon's idea for Spring League came about, but the Dixon plan and the USFL. But the USFL actually formed in 1982 because the NFL distracted David Dixon. And I say distracted, they made David Dixon a very good offer. And he became a very integral part of the New Orleans Saints being a, a, a new franchise in the NFL. He, he became... Uh, the heart and soul of the New Orleans Saints becoming a member of the NFL. And then after he was done with that, you know, he, he had a couple other successful business ventures. And then, you know, that once you have a fire for something, you always have a fire for it, whether you can, you know, you never can extinguish that. And it got to around, you know, 1980 and he decided, you know, maybe this spring football league, maybe it's time. And so he started, talking to different people, different businessmen, uh, different millionaires. And um, the USFL came about in 1982 and started playing in 1983. So that 83 season, let's go there. Maybe whatever you want, kind of a general jam session. Let's go over the history, just a brief overview from the beginning to the end. So the the 83 season was great, in my opinion, because the league only had 12 teams. They didn't have any preseason games, so they they basically kicked the door open on the season. You couldn't couldn't go watch an exhibition game and get a feel for the USFL. You had heard for eight months, nine months, a year, what the USFL planned on doing, but you had gotten really no taste of it other than if you were in one of those markets that local newspaper, local radio station might have 
covered some things, but you didn't really get a full taste of it. And it was pretty obvious from the start, from week one, that people wanted spring football because the crowds were amazing and they were into the games. They were having so much fun at the games. I mean, you had a, you had a, a terrible, you know, rainy, just horrible weather situation in Boston. And those people were at Nickerson, you know, watching the Boston breakers ready to, you know, if it had a roof, they would have blown it off. So the, you know, the, the 83 season was pretty incredible. There were a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of names that came through the 83 season that were, uh, you know, outstanding, you know, outstanding players. Um, and you had a bunch, you really had a bunch of good, good matchups that happened. So a few of the good things about the 83 season that I thought were the rules differences from the USFL, from the NFL, I'm sorry, the USFL had some, some major changes in rules. You had the optional two point conversion after the touchdown. And that was something that, you know, the NFL would add later. They actually added that in 1994, but the USFL had the two point conversion uh, to start out the season in 83. Um, you had the option of a, you know, a, a one inch kicking tee if for extra points and field goal attempts, if you wanted to use it. Now the NFL didn't adopt that. Um, the clock stopped on first downs within the last two minutes um, of the second and fourth quarters there. They had, this is, this was kind of an oddity, but they had an intentional and an unintentional pass interference rule. So it was at the referee's discretion, but if he thought that a guy just drug another guy down, there was a, there was a different penalty for intentional versus unintentional pass interference. Um, the, the first six, uh, six member officiating crew. And again, like I mentioned before, no preseason games, but you know, with in 83, you know, you had, you had Michigan come out of the gates. I mean, Bobby Bear throws for 3,500 yards and Michigan's just rolling, you know, through, through the entire season, they finished 12 and six. They were actually tied with the Chicago blitz. Chicago was right on their tail, but you know, the, the stars came through, they were 15 and three. They were the juggernaut that just held everybody back. But I would, I would highly encourage you. If you go on YouTube, there's a channel called USFL forever. And the guy that put that together is Joe Sampson. And two of my first recommendations for anybody that wants to remind themselves about the USFL or really kind of experience the USFL for the first time, I would watch the 83 championship game between Michigan and Philadelphia. They go punch for punch through the entire game. There was a kind of a controversial call very, very late in the game that might have cost Philadelphia from sweeping the championships because Philadelphia won 84 and then they moved to Baltimore and they won in 85. If they win that 83 game, then Philadelphia wins all three championships or the stars win all three championships in the, uh, during the the USFL, uh, the USFL's existence. So I would highly recommend the 83 championship game. And then in 1985, and we can delve into this at another point, 
But one of the most famous games in USFL history is called The Greatest Game No One Saw. And it was in February. It was in the L.A. Coliseum. And there were two young quarterbacks that really nobody had heard a whole lot about named Jim Kelly and Steve Young. It was the Houston Gamblers at the Los Angeles Express. And very, very little footage of this game ever existed because it, for whatever reason, it was not on national television. So Joe Sampson found footage of this game and worked for hundreds of thousands of hours and pieced this game together. And he even laughed with me. He said, he said, I had such limited footage that you're going to see the cheerleaders on the sidelines probably about 10 to 12 times during the game, because I was so limited on footage that I would just keep putting the same filler footage back into it. But he has the entire game on, on YouTube. He edited it together himself. It is, it's a marvel to watch. It's probably arguably the best USFL game in history. Huh? That in that. So you're talking to somebody who in my lifetime, nothing has even come close to rivaling the NFL. Like probably, I guess the USFL probably was the last one to do that. Jim Kelly, Steve Young, you mentioned two quarterbacks out of nowhere and now are Hall of Famers. That's just unfathomable for someone like me that they came out of nowhere from a, a fledgling league. And it sounds like the Eagles were like the Browns of the old school AAFC back in the 40s where they just they dominated the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they most certainly did. I mean, that, that Stars team front to back was so good. I mean, you had Chuck Fusina at quarterback. You had Kelvin Bryant as the main running back. Um, you had Alan Harvin that was in the backfield as well. You had fantastic receivers. You had a, a great defense, just a, a monster defense led by Irv Eatman. But there were so many names on that defense. that The stars, they, um, they did it year in and year out. The best, the best franchise in USFL history. And you know, what's even funny is, I heard Philadelphia and I couldn't get past my head. I said Eagles, I think, to you just now instead of the Stars because yeah. I'm so ingrained in the NFL. So one thing that stuck out in all those rules, and maybe this isn't the one I should have stuck on, but a, did you say a one-inch kicking tee even on field goals? On field goals and extra points, yes. So, I, I mean, did they have the record? I mean, I imagine Sebastian Janikowski just wheeling up on a, a, a – you know what I mean? Like they must have had massive field goals. Um, you'd be surprised. I mean, that, some very good kickers, you know, of course, one of the best kickers in in the league was, of course, with the Stars franchise, and that was Dave Trout. But, you know, I, I don't remember what his long field goal was, but I would say it was, I mean, I know Dave could knock it stiff from over 50, but I think his longest field goal might not have been 50 yards. And Dave, I know you're listening to this, and I'm sorry I don't know that because he's a really good He's a great guy and a good friend, but, you know, I, I don't remember, as I think back, I don't remember Dave going after a 50-yard field goal. Maybe I'm also not picture. maybe, you know what, did they still line up and come after him? Oh, sure. Or was, okay, see, that's where I think I misinterpreted the, the rule too. I was thinking like it's a free kick similar to the old school, like the free drop kicks. Yeah. Okay. Now that makes more sense. I'm thinking, man, you <laughs> kick the ball anywhere you want in the field almost at that point. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of that, you know, okay, we'll go to the Philadelphia stars because you said that was like the most dominant team. Was it believed 
during that time frame that the stars could really take on any of the NFL teams or even some of the upper echelon NFL teams? Um, I think, I think once the stars moved to Baltimore and the writing was on the wall, I think a lot of people thought, I, let me say this. I, I don't want to speak for anybody else. I think that had the USFL held on a couple of more years, I think that it might be the Baltimore Stars in the NFL rather than the Baltimore Ravens. I don't think I don't think that the Ravens franchise would exist. I think that the NFL would have absorbed the Stars because because they had such success year in and year out. And I want to add this in just as a tidbit. Um, a lot of people have been talking about the NFL adding a 17th game. And I've heard, you know, I've heard all of the talk. That's great. But one thing I want to say about the USFL, the USFL played an 18 game regular season schedule with no bye weeks. So the NFL telling me that they added a 17th game doesn't impress me in the least. I understand that it, you know, it's a, it's a new day. It's a new era. They're, bigger, faster, stronger. I get all of that, but the USFL did that way back when without body weeks. <laughs> yeah. And that would have been a little different too. So would they have been paid per game or was it still like a contract for the entire year? And they made, they made less per game. It was, it was still a contract for the entire year. And, and think about th- Just think about that for a second. Think about that first season where we're talking about Michigan and Philadelphia Michigan and Philadelphia meet in the championship game. So they played 18 regular season games and played two playoff games and then a championship game with no, no rest. There's, there there was no Super Bowl week. It's not like you had a week in between the championship game. They rolled straight through. And that was so springtime. So when their championship was that like midsummer or when would that have timeframe have been? Right in the dead heat of July. Oh man! And the three three championship games, the eighty-three. I I guess they skated on eighty-three because the eighty-three game was in Denver, and then the eighty-four game was in Arizona. Uh Outdoors too, I take it. Yeah, and then eighty-five was in New Jersey. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely a a, that's a lot. I mean, I remember playing sports and you know, training camp in the middle of July and August. And that's, that's not quite the same as playing like that uh, down there in the South, you know, being a Michigander and everything you, you kind of alluded to, we'll get to that later as, and we'll get to the other seasons and maybe the close it out on another episode. I got a couple games for you. Okay. So definitely mentioned before, there's a lot of major names that I did not realize until I started going through the list. I was like, wow, wow, wow. There's a lot of guys I know. Like you talk about all these other pro leagues that have gone in in past. I didn't know most of the teams. If you could give me your Mount Rushmore of, you can say players and even coaches if you like, but Mount Rushmore of four individuals from the USFL, who would it be? Well, you have to start with Herschel Walker. I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, Herschel was... Herschel was just about everything that embodied the USFL. So it has to be Herschel Walker. I don't know that you can take any one piece and I don't want to take anything away from any of these guys, but I think you have to have the stars franchise. 
on that Mount Rushmore as a whole, because again, year in and year out, they, they didn't lose games. So I think the stars franchise has to be on that Mount Rushmore. That includes the coach, Jim Mora. You know, he, he's the one that helped put everything together. He and uh, Carl Peterson, they, they put everything together to make that franchise successful. Um, man, that's a, that is a tough one. Uh, I think, I think I might have to put, I don't think, I know. You've got to put Bobby Bear on there because Bobby Bear was so successful as a quarterback, came up as a kid, nobody knew his name, and then next thing you know, he's winning a USFL championship in 1983. For my fourth, I think, and, and I am a little biased, but his numbers will stand behind this. I think you have to put John Corker on um, on the list. I mean, he set he set a record for sacks in '83 that will never ever ever be broken. I don't care how many games the NFL adds to their schedule; it will never be broken. Single season record, and he was just dominant. So I think those would probably be my four. So the sack you mentioned '83. I think that's when the NFL made it an official statistic too. Is it because of the USFL? Oh, I. I couldn't answer that question. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. And I could be even wrong about the timing. For some reason in my head, I'm thinking when I see the whole, you know, like the asterisks, it's always official stat and not start till for some reason, 1983 starts in my mind. But I realized that, you know, a lot, you have a lot of friends in the USFL project that, you know, you don't, again, it's impossible to give a true Mount Rushmore. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to put you in the witness protection program. Cause you got to maybe run away from some of these guys. <laughs> um, I see some of them on your back wall right there, right? Yeah. You have all these artifacts and you've talked about all these cool things from the USFL that you've had, but you're being sent to the witness protection program and some, I don't know, Siberia, some country you don't want to go to right now. You can take one of them with you. What artifact in your whole inventory are you taking with you? I have a I have a 16 by 20 black and white photo from the 85 championship game where the Baltimore Stars beat the Oakland Invaders and in the photo it's um, it's Chuck Fusina handing the ball to Kelvin Bryant with Bart Oates coming out to block for Kelvin and I've got it signed by all three of them. So I think I, I think that's probably because that was it was the last championship game. Um, it was the last game in USFL history. I think I think that is probably the most iconic thing I own. And that's tough because I have I have a mini helmet signed by Burt Reynolds. I have a mini helmet signed by Lee Majors. You know, I've got a bunch of different things, but I think if I if I had to choose one, it would have to be that. Yeah, I mean, like you said, you got so many. It's it's hard to which child do you want to get rid of, kind of thing. And uh, Delorean, question number two. I'm bringing this back in the picture here. So this is actually USFL history question. So you can steal my Delorean. I mean, I gave it to you. You're not stealing it. I give you the keys. Go back to any point in USFL history, and you can live it. You can be live, and you can even be like part of the moment. What moment would it be? I would be there when they formed the USFL and I would tell the owners to listen to David Dixon and follow his plan. I don't care if I was 10 or a hundred or what, or if I was even not invited to the meeting, 
if I got one chance, I would go back and I would sit in that original meeting where everything was formed and say, guys, this guy knows what he's talking about. Listen to him, follow his plan and don't deviate from it. You think in your heart of hearts, the Dixon plan, if they would have followed through, we'd be talking about the SFR right now? 100%. The only only reason we would not be talking about the USFL is if the NFL got smart and absorbed them like they did the AFL back in the 60s. That is the only way possible that we would not be talking about the USFL. Because I, I truly believe that the problems with the USFL and people, you know, people love to have their theories and they love to, you know, point fingers and say it was because of this, it was because of this, it was because of this. I don't know if I'm right or wrong and I'll never know. But if I could just get those original owners and any owner that followed to follow David Dixon's plan, who was a brilliant man, just listen to him. Just listen to what he said and do what he says. That's all I ask. Yeah, it's funny how the butterfly effect works. And uh, well, there's that time continuum with the DeLorean and Doc Brown, and you find out he's in a tombstone and all that stuff. But I got one other last DeLorean question. This is not even sports related, but I, I'm kind of curious about one of the fun facts that you had on your bio. Oh, I know where that is. 2,500 concerts. Are, were you a roadie or what's the story there? I don't appreciate you calling me a roadie. Um, I didn't make that was not a negative kind of tone. <laughs> um, so that is a little deceiving because I worked for almost 10 years in the entertainment industry. I worked at Billy Bob's Texas in Fort Worth, which is known as the world's largest honky tonk. And so, so the answer to that question has a lot to do with that. I mean, we had, we had concerts, we had major concerts every Friday and Saturday night. Sometimes we would add an additional Thursday concert and then Wednesday through Saturday, we had a house band on stage. So, I mean, I didn't even count the house band concerts in there because the house band they're playing, they're, they're, they're covering songs. So I didn't even count any of that. I was just thinking about the concerts I started attending when I was 10, 11, 12 years old through my Billy Bob's years through now. So yeah, I mean, it, it is a little deceiving, but that that number it is pretty accurate if it's not low. Is that is so the Willie Nelson Fourth of July parade? Is that at Billy Bob's or is that somewhere else? The concert he always has. Uh, we had that at Billy Bob's for th- three or four years of the years that I was there, and that was that that was an all hands on deck thing because the Willie Nelson picnic won. Uh, Willie said it has to be on 4th of July. I won't do it any other day. It's called the 4th of July picnic. I'm a traditionalist. It has to be on 4th of July. So it's outside because the club's not big enough to hold something like that. So you're talking big field right next door to Billy Bob's two stages dueling bands where, you know, somebody comes on here and then they get, they say, thank you. Good night. And then somebody comes on this stage and says, hello, Fort Worth. I mean, it is going on all day. So all hands on deck. And I mean, I I can tell you that every single year that we had the Willie Nelson picnic, I was in a beer booth somewhere. We were, we were selling beer all day and all night. And the, the funny thing is, is, um, we have, uh, TABC here, which is the, uh, Texas alcohol commission. And, we had to 
every beer that we served, we didn't serve them in glass bottles. That's, I mean, that's no, no, but we had these aluminum bottles. And if, if it was a beer that had to be, that wasn't a glass bottle only, then we had to open it and pour it into a cup. But those aluminum bottles, if, if somebody came up, you could only order two at a time. So if somebody comes up and says, Hey, I want to go, okay, you pick them out and you take the caps off of both of them, hand them to them. And we would get this question a thousand times a day. They'd say, Hey, can you leave the cap on that one? I'm going to, I'm going to drink this one. Then I'll open, man, I can't do it because, because TABC considers a beer with a cap on it, a, a potential missile, a potential weapon. But when we sold them bottles of water, we just handed them to them. That's not a bottle of water. Isn't dangerous. Trust me, I've been hit by a bottle of water. I can tell you it it can be dangerous. It's just as dangerous as a beer with a cap on it. I can imagine. So yeah, I always, I mean, I remember the one, geez, I can't remember which band it was now, but I went to a concert and I asked that question and they, that's what they did say. It was the whole, you know, throwing it up at the stage. I'm like, why, why would I want to throw this up at the stage? I want to drink it. But I get a bunch of rowdy people that, you know, don't, don't want to do the right thing. So I guess I didn't actually ask you the question. You can go to one of those concerts and you can like relive it. Which one would it be? I don't know. I, you know, I've got to say, I've seen some, I've seen some pretty amazing concerts in my day. I think the the band that I have seen more than any other band that doesn't have to do with Billy Bob's is Maroon 5. And I think I would go back to one of the first times that I saw Maroon 5 and um, Counting Crows was one of the openers. And I cannot believe that <laughs> I cannot come up with this. Um, Fans, this is live coverage of me looking up the third band. <laughs> um, it is not that one. One Republic. Mm. I had never heard of One Republic before that night. I had no concept of One Republic. And so they opened. And I can tell you that at least twice, it was a big open air. Um, it, the places had so many names. I'm not even going to insult it, try to figure out what it's called now. But the the lead singer from One Republic jumped off the stage twice and just ran up the aisles and around this horseshoe singing the whole time and then jumped back on stage. And then I thought, you know, I thought they were fantastic. And then Counting Crows came on and Counting Crows topped them. I'd forgotten how many songs Counting Crows had, but they were fantastic. And then Maroon 5 came on and topped both of them. It's like they were together backstage and they said, let's play a game of top this. And they, they did, and they did it fantastically. So I think, I think that's probably the one that I would go back to. Well, now things are starting to open up again. We can go back to our concerts. We'll go back to our events. And unfortunately, we will not go back to the USFL unless you do find a way to keep my DeLorean and my keys. <laughs> With that being said, last words of wisdom about the USFL project and what you're trying to accomplish and maybe even where the listener can find some of your work. Well, I appreciate that. Um, what we're doing with the USFL project has a lot of layers. And even though the USFL project's been around for 15 years, we're still, we're still in infancy right now. 
we know what we want to do and we know the steps that we have to take. It's uh, right now it's just being patient going through with the process because we have, I mean, we've got some really, really big plans and lofty goals and I hate to be so general. It's just, uh, I, I can't, there are a lot of things about it that I can't talk about right now. And, and I want to, it's killing me right now, actually being here because I, you know, I want to tell the world, but we're working on a lot of cool things and we, we've got, you know, we've got a lot of plans. Uh, if you want to see what you're, what we're up to, the easiest thing to do is to go to Facebook groups and search the USFL project. Uh, we, we actually just, had a nice new logo created for uh, for us from a fantastic artist named Gene Sani. And uh, he was, man, he, he kicked that thing out so quick and it was so good. I mean, I, I was, I was stunned. I'm still thankful to him. Um, we, uh, we are on Twitter at the USFL project. We are on Instagram at the USFL project. So those are the three main th- places that you can follow us, but, um, the group by far, the group by far is the most popular. Uh, we've got over 4,000 members. We do ask membership questions. And the reason we do that is to keep the Russian bots out. But it, they're very simple. We, we ask three things. We ask, who's your favorite team? If you, if, if you had a favorite team in the USFL, just tell us. If you were too young, just tell us. Just, just give us give us some kind of an answer. We ask you if you were a fan or alumni, and we ask you if you um, will uh, go by the rules of the group. We've got we've got ten simple rules in the group, very 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 easy to abide by. We we don't talk politics, you know. We don't we don't allow anything racy, anything like that. I mean, they're very. Once you read the rules, you're like, yeah, that. I mean, the rules are common sense, but. We have to have the rules because there are there's one in particular figure that was involved with the USFL who turned political that is a hot button. And so we had to invoke that rule because we we don't mind you talking about Donald Trump in the USFL sense. We just don't want to start talking about politics. If you want to say he was the worst owner of the New Jersey Generals or he was the best owner of the New Jersey Generals, be my guest. Just don't cuss when you do it and don't talk about his political career. That's uh, that's probably the main that's probably the main rule that we have issues with. And the second one, the second one that we have issues with is don't post anything that's not USFL related. If it doesn't have anything to do with the USFL, I understand there there have been a lot of other football leagues that people are fans of. I totally get it. But we stay USFL related. Now, it may be an alumni who got a coaching job at a college, but if he's an alumni, that's USFL related. Just bring it back to the USFL. That's all we ask, man. My team, my team could not be cooler. They're, they're the best team I could possibly ask for. They are Matthew McConaughey on a Sunday with his flip-flops on on the beach in a chair with a Mai Tai. They could not be cooler. All we ask is that you follow the rules.
All right, all right. Let's follow the rules. And I speaking of three questions, you almost got me thinking I had to shut this down, the witness protection program. You're gonna go Rick Grimes on me and ask me those kind of three <laughs> questions like in The Walking Dead. So anyway, thanks again for showing up. The golden nuggets that you gave us, but also the teaser bombs that you dropped on us. We'll have to bring you on for another show. And with that, any last words before we get going on here? No, man. Thanks for having me. I, I absolutely love the show. I appreciate the time. I, we absolutely love talking about the USFL. We we love talking to the great podcasts out there. So, man, I appreciate it. Keep up the good work. And uh, did I did I hear that I might be able to be on again? I didn't I didn't burn a bridge yet. That's one of those things where we'll keep it an open line. We'll see where the story lays and where the line falls. So we'll go for it. <laughs> so I'm not voted off the island yet. Not yet. But then again, this hasn't been live to the public. So, you know, I'm not going to speak for them. <laughs> I'm a man of the people. <laughs> I'm a man of the people, too. So it, for the people out there, man, come join our group. Come have some fun. Come learn a little bit about the USFL. We'd love to have you. There you go. If you're interested in the USFL, you should join the group. And speaking of the USFL, you know, I think it's kind of funny how we mentioned that unless we have a DeLorean, you won't go back to the USFL game again, that boom, USFL announcement a week later. So just full disclosure, of course, we recorded this before that announcement came out and everybody knows about it. But I guess I could say I'm more than a DeLorean driver. I'm like Terry Bradshaw's surgeon. I am Dr. Nostradamus. But anyway. Hope you enjoyed this interview and were able to learn a little bit about the history of the USFL and to learn more about the USFL project and become an active member, head over to the SFL project page on Facebook. Remember, there are only three rules, Kyle said, but you must obey. And last but not least, to find your next favorite sports history podcast, head over to the podcast page on the website. You can get there by heading to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads. Hi, I'm Oz Davis of the True the Goats podcast here at the Sports History Network. I'd like to take a minute to tell you about quite possibly the greatest website of all time, newspapers.com. If you're listening to this podcast or any of them at the Sports History Network, you're probably into sports history. And you probably also know that for learning about anything prior to, say, 1990 online, the typical search engines like are nearly completely useless. But then there's newspapers.com. Newspapers.com gives you access to over 640 million pages worth of news from North America, Britain, Ireland, and more, dating from 1798 to last week. Do up a search for Super Bowl One, the 36th Berlin Olympics, Wayne Gretzky's first game, whatever. Newspapers.com takes you there with historical flavor that search engines like just don't give you. And now, get a free one-week subscription to Newspapers.com by visiting SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash newspapers. With a paid subscription, you'll also be helping to support the production of Myth Podcasts and other Sports History Network shows. That's SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash newspapers. Newspapers.com. Way better for searches than You know what I'm talking about. Hey there, Sports History fan. 
This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.